Well, today with characteristic uh, detail and emotion, the Apostle John gives us the resurrection account of Mary Magdalene, a woman Jesus delivered from demon possession and who followed him to the very end, as we read today. She happens to be mentioned in the gospel 12 times, which is more than most of the apostles. Just a little fun fact. It's interesting. And in a culture where a woman's firsthand testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law, John hands the megaphone to Mary. And now that's one of the many indications that John and the earliest Christians had begun to see the world and one another in a radically new way, in the light of the resurrection. But did it really happen, we might ask today? We often are confronted with the question of the reality of the resurrection. Did it happen? Well, any doubtful historian must reckon with as much really standard historical evidence as virtually any event from that era, as impossible as that event may seem. They'd have to explain at least two phenomena. One, how was it that a claim so seemingly absurd didn't fizzle out like so much nonsense before it? And two, why would the people proclaim it so doggedly, even when it meant being ostracized, persecuted, or killed? Let me put it another way. Either thousands of people went insane in just a little over a month, or something radical actually happened. Of course, we believe it did, but not merely because the history is sound and compelling. We believe it because the story itself is as unique and powerfully alive as the one around whom it centers. Because it's become as real as anything else in our own lives and our own histories. But today, having heard the story of the resurrection again, I want to focus on these four short verses in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, where after, you know, long after all the hubbub has settled down, these resurrection people have got to figure out how to get on with it, how to stay the course in this overlap of new, old and new worlds, in this collision of cultures, in this strange and powerful message that they've made their own. And to boot, you have the psychopath, Nero, who's become the emperor of Rome. And that's one big reason among many why following Jesus had, for them, had gotten complicated by many orders of magnitude, culturally or otherwise. As Jesus promised, this happy news has become a hard mission. This cruciform way of life required courage, courage grounded in faith. And I think it's always good on Easter And really always good on Sunday to remember what we mean by faith. What do we mean by faith? Faith is not, as skeptics claim, sub-rational. In other words, we turn our brains off, we suspend our minds so that we can believe something. It's not sub-rational. Instead, faith is super-rational. What does that mean? We embrace human reason and understanding as a gift from God. We use it every day, hopefully. But we also embrace the fact that it's limited, that it's contingent, that it's permeable. So we, by faith, live beyond reason, believing that our minds are actually capable of far more than modern reductionism or scientism or skepticism. We believe in the substance of the unseen, the evidence of things hoped for. That's super-rational faith. 
So the question becomes, if all of that's true, if all that John says happened is true, what difference does it make for Colossae? What difference does it make for Greenville? That's the fundamental question. So I want to start with an image, an idea expressed in an image. And let me ask you, how many of you are familiar with the Wheel of Fortune? Okay, now how many of you are familiar with the Wheel of Fortune, not the show that's been on network TV longer than I've been alive? Significantly fewer. Sorry to trick you there. It's been on so long that Vanna White no longer has to physically turn the illuminated tiles to reveal the letters. Did you know this? I hadn't watched it in years. She doesn't even have to. She simply touches them and they appear, which means after 47 years, she has become one with the puzzle. (laughs) It's wild. But I'm not talking about that wheel of fortune. I'm talking about a wheel that's way older than Vanna, an ancient wheel to which that game show kind of nods. I'm talking about the Rota Fortunae, which is a conceptual depiction of how the ancients understood fate. Though it predates the Roman goddess Fortuna, after whom it's named, she's the one who spins the wheel for people who find themselves somewhere in relation to four conditions of life. And let me show you those four conditions. I have a slide for you today. Hopefully all of you can see it. You might need to lean out. I've got some Latin up there. You're welcome. That's your Easter gift. Regno, I reign. I'm the king. Regnave, I reigned. Oh no, I'm on my way down. At rock bottom, the peasant, the pauper, some seen regno, I have no kingdom. And then, things are getting better, I'm on the way up. Regnabo, I shall reign. So due to the fickle hand of fortune, you might find yourself highborn as royalty or destitute as a pauper or somewhere in between, on the way down or on the way up. And this is the way it was, it was understood or thought, that, that by the spinning of the wheel, you land in any one of these places at any given time. And the concept, though, shifted some as it moved through Roman philosophy and it moved into the medieval era where art and literature, um, they concentrated on the tragic aspect. It was a cautionary sort of um, tale, you know, a, the downfall of the mighty, the, temporary, uh, the temporality of earthly things. It shows up in Canterbury Tales, you may remember, in Dante's Inferno. It's in Thomas More's Utopia. We see the Wheel of Fortune there and this idea there. But the image changed some along with the way it was understood. During this same era, you begin to see the wheel depicted differently in Christian circles. Here's what you find. You find at the center of the wheel is the risen and reigning Christ. Now, this is not an ancient version. This is one that you can see in high def, right? Uh, The ones that if you go and look for the wheel of fortune, you'll see very intricate. And Jesus is often depicted in the middle, actually seated on a throne. And wherever you might find yourself on the rim of the wheel, because Jesus is there in the center, it's secondary. Your real destiny is the center is what they meant to convey, convey where Christ is. And as I said, he's often pictured seated, enthroned, grounding reality for those at whatever quadrant, uh, wherever folks find themselves on the wheel. Even though it seems to turn differently for everyone, Christ is anchoring and centering our lives. The point that's illustrated here, I think, was and is exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossians. 
like all the early communities of faith and everyone after, the Colossians are struggling to hold the course. They're struggling to hold the line against the pervasive tide of temptation and false teaching and hardship. Life is up and down. The losses are piling up. Having a body was as hard then as it is now. They're struggling to make sense of their ongoing differences and divisions as the, the, the church is being assembled from here and yon. There was nothing like it, bringing people of these differences together, and they're battling within, they're battling without. And Paul is writing, incidentally, from a Roman jail. Yet at the beginning of the letter, he wants them to see, he wants them to feel the magnitude of Jesus in the midst of challenge. Saying the, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Yes, those things. Their things. Your things. In chains, Paul longs for them to continue in the faith. He says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. These the words of a man in prison. And he's proclaiming what's already true about them beyond what the rim of the wheel seems to be saying. Whether good or bad, there's a greater truth. They've already died with Jesus through baptism and are raised with him to new life. So what are they doing? They're opening their hearts and their minds to this profound mystery beyond their present challenges. This is a security that can't be taken from them though it can certainly be trivialized by focusing on transient and temporal things, by setting their minds on those things and thinking that is the fundamental and only reality that they're ultimate, they're defining. And so there's a part of us, what Paul is saying here, there's a part of us, of our, our life and our self-understanding that is actually awaiting us. We live in the tension, as it were, of the resurrection. The already and the not yet. And I don't know about you, but I actually find comfort in that. And the fact that what's happening now, as I understand it, can't tell me everything that there is to know. I used to want to know everything that there is to know and explain everything that's going on at any given time, any place for everyone. But I find relief. That there's part of us that's awaiting us. Like Paul himself admits, I don't even fully understand myself. I don't. I can't. Just when I think I understand myself, life happens. Again, new burdens emerge. Idealism wanes. My confidence is taxed. Middle age happens. It happened. Teenagers happen. Parents suffer and they die. Friends battle cancer. Friends get divorced. And you were at their wedding. Money comes. And money goes. And life is anything but linear. I thought it was. I keep thinking it is, but it's not. It gets interrupted. The ground moves. The goalposts move. So the question becomes this. Who am I in the middle of all this? Who am I? And Paul is saying, I know who you are. 
I know who you are. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, who is your life, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And that's the tension. That's normal Christianity. There is a security for me beyond how I think and feel. The wheel be damned. Of course, we mostly reject the idea in our day and age of fate and fortune, but we have our own approach to, to it. We can really have our own wheel if we're honest. If anything uh, is sub-rational, it's the way that, that capitalism, let's just call it what it is, has become a runaway train, and it's made it so hard for us to imagine ourselves, whether it's good or bad, we're at the top or the bottom, that we're more than producers and consumers, princes or paupers. Rising or falling somewhere on the wheel of this definition of life and understanding. Measured and reduced. But brothers and sisters, when we learn to live in the light of the resurrection, and not by the tyranny of the rim, the second century words of the good bishop of Lyon, a man named Irenaeus, they take on flesh. He said this, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That's what God wants above all things is for you to be fully alive. And what does that mean? It won't mean the sum of your circumstances right now. That's for sure. Being fully alive in light of the resurrection means everything we experience in life is transfigured by the resurrection. Changed, lifted beyond what it seems to be. All of our gains and all of our blessings even at the top when it's working for us, these are transfigured beyond beyond our personal benefit. That's not all they're for. They grow from the seeds of gratitude and they flower into hospitality and generosity and generativity. The active work of life and resurrection in the world around us. And when people raised with Christ seek the things above where Christ is, as he says, even our hardships, life at the bottom as it feels like, they're transfigured beyond personal loss and despondency and become opportunities for compassion and empathy. That's being fully alive too, do you know? The kind of ministry our Lord Himself chose, dignifying those who could only imagine their lives as some sort of punishment or failure or isolation, unable to think of themselves beyond the lie of the rim of the wheel. If you ever travel to churches in developing countries or parts of those countries, you will find Christians who are shockingly liberated from the rim. Even though their circumstances seem to suggest misfortune. You find people of the resurrection not merely hoping for the future, but already living it with a strange, inexplicable joy. The levels of gratitude and generosity that I saw in the, the sacred valley of the Incas in Peru or in the tiny uh, real community uh, of, of believers in, in Muslim Senegal or in little shanty towns in Mexico, it was staggering. And to be sure, their suffering is not to be trivialized. Much of what they suffer is more than they can do anything about it. Systemic failure of social systems and infrastructure and government and you name it. Their hardship is profound. I'm not saying in any way that we should trivialize that or just see them as happy clappy in spite of this difficulty. But for them, it's not ultimate. And they know it in a way that surpasses knowledge. 
And then after these folks that I came across, every time I traveled, every, after they scandalized me, they assured me that the resurrection life is real. And it's experiential. It's lived in real life and it's embodied truth understand, understood most fully by those who aren't captive to the wheel. To what Paul calls the kinds of philosophies and empty deceits that the Colossians were falling prey to in chapter 2. The expectations of these brothers and sisters, it would seem, in these places where life is much harder than we can imagine, their expectations are married to the resurrection. And that's our desire to be married to the resurrection as our central and defining and grounding reality, the supernational wisdom beyond the weak constructs in every passing era. There's nothing new under the sun. It's still as weak as it was when it was pervading the church in Colossae. If this is Paul's desire for the Colossians in their particular time and place, friends, this is his desire for us in ours. So it's good that we hear these four verses again. Jesus, who is our life, is alive, he's saying. So we're alive. And regardless of how we feel or what we face, we're alive and fully alive. And it's the glory of God. We are the glory of God illuminating the darkness, even 2,000 years and 6,000 miles removed from the empty tomb. Here we are. And it's in this strange and glorious truth that Paul himself can embrace the tension of the resurrection. Can disregard the wheel and what it might be saying. And he can close his letter as he does saying this. Remember my chains. Grace be to you. Grace be to you. Lord, we thank you for our brother Paul. We thank you for our sister Mary. We thank you for what we have in you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive and that you went through unthinkable injustice and suffering for us. And so, Lord, help us today to get our thinking and our, our, our acting and our conceiving and our imagining off the rim of the wheel and into the center today. You are alive and you are grounding our reality and help us to live in that very reality. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.